Hey, it's Daryl. As we get started, I wanted to let you know about a new course that I just released last month, and it is called Helping Others Grow. And if you are interested, uh, I want to give you a special coupon for podcast listeners, and the code is PODCAST21, PODCAST21, and that will get you $10 off the course Helping Others Grow. If you're interested, go to gospelforlife.com, and you can find out more information there. Okay, that's it. Let's get started. Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We provide clear, practical, biblical resources for discipleship. Here's your host, Daryl Dash. Have we overcomplicated, over-systemized, and over-formalized making disciples? That's the question that Bill Mowry asked in his new book, Walk With Me, Simple Principles for Everyday Disciple Making. It may be that we formalized and professionalized and systemized disciple making to a point where it's, it just seems too complicated for many people to practice. Bill wants to help us return to the essential biblical practices that will help people grow as Christ followers in simple, slow, and deep ways. Bill and his wife Peggy serve on staff with the Navigators Church Ministries in Columbus, Ohio. And Bill has an extensive history and experience in disciple making. He's not that far away from where I'm recording in Toronto. So, Bill, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Daryl, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our time together. I'm really excited about your book. As as we mentioned before we started recording, I have a, a concern that churches figure out how to build a culture of disciple making and also that we demystify disciple making so that everybody can practice it. So how did you end up writing this book? Well, you know, all books have a variety of beginnings and I think probably one of the uh, things that motivated me to write this book is that after been, I've been on staff of the Navigators for over 40 years, involved in a variety of disciple-making ministries, and you periodically look back and you kind of reflect and think, what have I learned and, and how have I grown over the years? And in some ways, this book is kind of a collection of principles that I wish I would have known and practiced 20, 30 years ago. You know how it is that when we're young and we're first starting out, we tend to think we know it all, and, and time has a habit of teaching us that we don't know as much. And so this book, in some ways, is kind of a collection of principles and, and insights that I've gained over the years that, boy, in some ways, I wish I would have practiced a while back, but I'm glad I'm, I'm seeking to, to practice them now. I think the other side of the book, not only from a personal level, but also exactly what you addressed. I think sometimes we... I like to call it that my passion in life is how do you unclutter and deprofessionalize a great commission? I think we've made the idea of making disciples kind of complicated. I know one popular book on disciple making has at the end of the book, 32 things you need to disciple somebody in. And I think I can't even disciple myself in 32 things. And how do I do that with somebody else? And the other thing we found is we minister in churches, helping churches build disciple-making ministries. A lot of times for, you know, the typical attender and believer thinks that, well, this is a ministry that only the ministry professionals can do. After all, that's what we pay them for, isn't it? And so that we've removed disciple-making, I think, sometimes from the practice of the everyday believer. And so, yeah, you know, so at a personal level and I think at a pragmatic level, those are some of the reasons what, behind writing this book. Maybe you've already touched on this, but how does your book run counter to a lot of other approaches to discipleship practices? 
I think that one of the things that dominates the market today, for example, oh, a while back, I walked into a pastor's office and he had a real interest in disciple making in his church. And as I walked in, I noticed that stacked around his desk were piles of books and video series and programs for disciple making. And, and I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. And I think what the church has tended to do is to how do we condense disciple making they're like a 12 week curriculum type of thing or how do we package it in a series of videos and run a program then that everybody could complete and so kind of at the end of the time you have a little checklist that you mark off and you assume that hey i've been discipled through this program through this curriculum uh, through these books that i've read and so that i think what i've learned over the years is that boy real change often happens, God often changes us through the context of a relationship with somebody. And also, disciple-making really is something that's an intentional process. But at the same time, you know, God has his way of, like we were talking about a friend before we began the podcast, that they went through a recent tragedy in his life and how God used it. And God has a way of kind of interrupting our programs and our curriculums and and sometimes he's just slower how he works than an outline would like us to be. And so as I've experienced and practiced disciple making over the years, I, I think that, you know, boy, can we simplify it? We can use programs and curriculums or helpful tools, but it's really something more than that. And it really has to be kind of in the context of a relationship, knowing that God often works in some slow ways. And also we want to be about building depth in people's lives and not just completing a program. A lot of people feel like they really aren't ready to disable other people. They feel like maybe in 10 or 20 years when they've grown more, right. then they can tell other people, walk with me and I will show you what it, what it looks like to follow the Lord. So what would you say to somebody who feels just that they're not ready to begin to invite somebody to walk with them? Let me, let me try to answer it from two perspectives. One perspective is from the perspective of the disciples. Okay, when we look at Matthew 28, kind of the Great Commission passage, right? Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and it describes how the 11 showed up on this mountain that Jesus instructed them to come to. And I thought, that's a great principle right there. Disciple making starts when we show up. I mean, these 11 guys showed up. And it says, and they worshiped him. And it says that some doubted. And I thought, well, that's an interesting statement that some doubted. And as we reflect on it, I don't think the doubt was regarding his resurrection. They'd had repeated encounters with Jesus. And I don't think the issue was his resurrection. And so what was their doubt? And as I thought about it, I thought, I think the doubt was related to the sense of mission that they knew that Jesus was sending them on. Because right from the beginning, you know, like in Matthew 4, follow me and I'll send you, fish, I'll make you fishers of men. In Mark 3, he chooses 12 to be with him and to be sent out to preach. There's always a sense of mission that they knew they were going to, that Jesus was going to give to them. Now, again, picture what happened a few days prior to that arrival on that mountaintop. They had all deserted Jesus. I mean, Peter denied him three times. And so if you ever have a group of people that feel totally unworthy, totally defeated, totally embarrassed and humiliated, here's a group of men. And they're thinking, he's going to give me a mission. And who am I that I can accomplish this mission? And so what's Jesus do? It's interesting in that command to go and make disciples it's kind of like he bookends or borders that command. He borders it or bookends it with all authority has been given to me. And then he says, I'm going to be with you. You know, wherever you go, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. 
And so he sends them out in his authority and with his presence to always be with them. And I thought, you know, it's a little bit like kind of Jesus is writing this blank check. He said, men, whatever you need, you're going to do the mission. I'm going to give it to you on the basis of my authority and my presence. So with the 11, I think that's kind of a, boy, I think we can all identify with these 11 men that maybe we haven't denied Jesus or retreated from him to the extent that they had. But, you know, we all feel very inadequate and maybe sometimes ashamed of who we are and thinking, how can I do this? And yet he empowers us to do it. So that's one side. Another side of this is that, and that's, you know, this metaphor or word picture of walking with me, that we're inviting people to walk with us. And, and like on any path that we're walking on, it's kind of like if a path has mile markers, some of us are up to mile marker three, some of us are up to mile marker six, some of us are up to mile marker 10. Now we can only walk with people to the mile marker that we're at. And so that if I'm a young believer and I'm just getting some things figured out, I'm kind of at mile marker three, well, we can help somebody up to mile marker three, but I, I probably can't help them to get to six. But again, this is where the body of Christ comes in, right? Because in the body of Christ, you know, and again, I think this is another sometimes, and particularly with the navigators, we are strong on person-to-person ministry, one-to-one ministry, but sometimes we can so emphasize that the disciple-making becomes a single sport, a singles match, rather than a, you know, a sport, a team sport. And so the body is to be involved in this thing at a team level. And so I can only take people as far as I've come in my relationship with Christ, but this whole body of believers out there that can take a person on to mile marker six or 10 or whatever it might be. And so I just encourage people, you've got something to offer, start right where you are with what you know. If I can only make it to mile marker three, that's great. And I've got other people that can take somebody further. But I've got to decide, do I want to go further to mile marker six? And so maybe I need somebody to help disciple me to get to that point. So that's a couple of thoughts on, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you, people feeling like I'm feeling inadequate? I can look to the example of the disciples. What do I have to offer? Well, if I'm at mile marker three, I've at least got three miles worth I could offer somebody. It might be a little bit intimidating because A, we might have to be honest about some of our struggles. Yes. About maybe we're having marriage problems or we're dealing with a particular area of temptation. And then as well, what if we don't know the answer and we get stumped? So how would you deal with those areas where either we have to be open and vulnerable about our own struggles or we don't know something? With the issue of vulnerability, there's an interesting passage in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 22, 28. And this is Jesus talking to the 12. And he says, you have been those who have stood by me in my trials. And I thought, that's an interesting statement. Because when we think about standing by somebody, it's more than just my physical presence of standing next to you. But standing communicates the idea that I'm standing next to somebody as a source of support and help. I'm in relationship with them. And Jesus says, these 12 men had stood with him, not physically, but at a relational level in his trials. And we know that Jesus was tempted in all ways that we are, but without sinning. And we see this happening in the garden, you know, we, you know, this gut-wrenching scene. And it would appear that for these men to stand with him, it would seem like the question you have to ask then is, well, then he must have told them when he was being tempted, when he was struggling. Because how else could they stand with him if they didn't know the circumstance? 
So I think, you know, we don't want to carry this too far because he is a son of God, but there are multiple examples in the gospel of kind of Jesus revealing his heart and, and, um, and what's going on in his life. And so I think the master sets the example for us of being transparent with one another. The other side is that, you know, it's not about giving the right answer. That's what I've seen too in disciple making. It's like in evangelism that we're fearful about starting faith conversations because we're afraid that somebody's going to ask us something we don't know. And and I have to admit, you know, hey, I well, if I don't know, there's probably somebody else that does know. I can I can go and ask them and get an answer for it. The other side is that, you know, discipling is not about passing on information and people accumulating the right knowledge or doctrine. That's part of it. We want them to believe the right things. But it's really about imparting our life in Christ. And part of that life in Christ is having him meet us at our point of need in our trials and our temptations, inviting him in. And so that I'm setting an example for somebody else that as I'm sharing with them, I'm really struggling with this. I'm asking God to help me in this. That's inviting them both into my life. And it's setting an example of how Christ can make a difference in my life, right at this point of need that I have. And so that, again, you know, if it's, that's this idea that this is reserved only for the spiritual few. And I just don't see that in the New Testament, that we're engaging people in a life, in a walk, as I talk about it there. And in a walk, we don't have to be perfect walkers. We don't have to be perfect in our life, but we can invite people into what's happening now and how God's at work. So what kind of practices would, are you recommending that we build into our lives as we invite people to walk with us? Well, there's one priority practice that I look at, uh, Daryl. And, and again, if you go back to that Matthew 28 passage that uh, they're on the mountain, and what's the first thing they do? Well, they worship him. And now, again, we can only imagine what worship looks like. It's probably nothing like our Sunday morning worship services. But there is a sense of kind of adoration and maybe even a sense of celebration about who Jesus was. And I've often thought that the great commandment of loving God always precedes the great commission. And, and that's reflected, I think, in Revelation 2 with the Ephesian church, right? He says that, well, I've got something against you. You've lost your first love. So one of the first things I do in discipling somebody, we talk about their first love. And we talk about what are the things you're doing to invest in that first love? In the same way, what are, if you're married, what are the, some of the things you're doing to invest in your marriage relationship? If you've got a good friend, what are some of the things you're doing to invest in that relationship? That relationships need investment because they never stay the same. They're either you know, growing or they're declining, and they grow when I make investments in them. And so I want to invest in my love relationship with Jesus. And so I need some love habits, as I call it in the book. And just one of the love habits that I, I start people with is just getting a daily time with God. We can call it a daily quiet time, daily devotional, uh, an appointment with God. It doesn't matter what name you want to call it. But I'm setting aside time to allow God to kind of speak to me through his word. And I speak back to him in prayer. I'm kind of calling a halt to life. I'm setting aside this quiet space to encounter God in the scriptures and in prayer. And that's one of the first things I do, you know, with, with a believer is we talk about what are you doing to invest in your love life and your relationship with Jesus. And that's one of the simple practices that I start with. And we could go in and talk about more, but that's one of the simple things because here's the other side, Daryl, that's something we can do with somebody. 
And so that I could invite somebody to coffee, breakfast, or lunch, and ask them, well, let's, let's just take a few minutes and let's read the scriptures together. Let's ask some questions about it. And then if it's appropriate and it's not super embarrassing, maybe we could pray it back, what we've discovered. And so this is something I can do easily with people. In fact, I've done it in the last year through Zoom chats like this. <laughs> and I've had quiet times with people, you know, in a Zoom chat. Because that, again, it's investing in that first love. And that's a, that's a simple little discipline that we can get started because we can all engage somebody else in reading the Bible and praying together. That's why I like the simplicity of this. And it communicates, this is a way of building our love relationship with Jesus. So it sounds like what you're, you're giving us isn't a curriculum per se. It's not, we're going to complete this workbook. Nothing wrong with that, but yes. that's not necessarily even required. And yet it's not completely spontaneous. It's not completely unstructured. Yes. There is a, an intentionality about it. So is it, yes. could you unpack that a little bit about the almost like an, in, an intentional unstructured relationship? Yes. yes. I. Well, let me uh, address a little bit by talking about the word organic. And a lot of times we talk about organic ministry, organic church, organic disciple making. And, and sometimes what's associated with that word organic is that it's kind of haphazard, it's spontaneous, it naturally flows. And yet, uh, as I've gotten to know organic gardeners and farmers, <laughs> they are some of the most disciplined and intentional people that I know. And so that when we think of being organic, it's not so much about something that's haphazard, but it's doing it in a natural context of life way that is highly intentional. So an organic farmer, for example, is just not going to assume that I'll throw some seeds out there and I'll wait around. I'm not going to use any fertilizer, you know, et cetera. I'm not going to use any big farm equipment, but he or she is highly intentional and they know it's more than just throwing some seeds around. And so it is with, I think, in disciple making that when you look at the New Testament, there's some really important things that people need to know and do and to be. And so that our job in the context of the church and in the context of disciple making is that, yeah, there's some really important things we need to pass on about what people need to know, be, and do to be followers of Jesus. And in fact, that's wrapped up in that great commission passage of teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so that I look at it in the back of my mind, I've got a picture of what, to me, a biblical disciple looks like. And that's what I look, talk about in my book. Can you have you part of the way of, of simplicity and disciple making is having a picture of what a disciple looks like, a New Testament picture. And so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking I want to help him or her move towards being a wholehearted follower of Jesus where that picture is becoming a living reality in their life. And so along the way, I've got some, you know, verses we're going to look at, you know, maybe I've got some books to read, I've got some studies to do, I've got questions we want to talk about. And so that in the back of my mind, I've got this picture that we're moving towards, they may or may not know that at some period in time, I do want to share that picture with them. But initially, it's in the context of a relationship. But I've got kind of a little bit of an agenda, I want to move them towards this picture. And we're going to do things together to help make that happen. And sometimes a curriculum, a program, like the Navigators have a, you know, a Bible study called the Navigator 2-7 series, which is really an excellent series. And it covers a lot of these things that we need to know, be, and do. And I'll use that with people. So I'm not divorcing myself, but I use it in the context of a relationship that I have with people. 
and not simply a class where I'm teaching the material. And so that when you think about something be or, being organic, it really implies not so much that it's haphazard, but it's highly intentional and highly disciplined, and there's an end goal in mind. And so that with that end goal in mind, I can then adapt to the pace, to the interest, and to the background knowledge of the other person. What are some failures that we should try to avoid as we disciple other people? <laughs> well, let's say, yeah, I, I probably ought to write a book on failures. <laughs> and uh, I think um, um, one failure that's easy to do is to, in fact, I, I've done this, and I was just talking to a pastor recently about this, this, uh, you know, young man had come to faith, and one of the first steps the pastor did, he says, well, here's a Bible study I want you to do. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. We want to get people in the scriptures. But what's that immediately communicate to this person? Well, I guess the Christian life is about doing these Bible studies. And in fact, they come packaged. And I got to fill in, you know, see what I'm saying? Instead of saying that, hey, that's exciting what God's done in your life. Let's get together and talk some more about that. And let's see what God's doing. And let's talk about where do you think he wants you to go from here? Or inviting them to read the scriptures together. So that's in the context of a relationship. I'm kind of accomplishing the same things because in the back of my mind, I'd like to, yeah, hit on some of those things that might have been that Bible study, but that's different from presenting a Bible study to somebody. You see what I'm saying? And so that, you know, it's just easy. I remember one time when I was in campus ministry at uh, the Ohio State University here in Columbus, Ohio, and one of my roles was uh, training some young leaders. And these were all young guys in their early 20s, they all had full-time careers and they were involved with us on campus. And one of the men, you know, was a, a buyer for a major department store. And so he'd often interact with the guys in the warehouse. And so that he ended up then leading one of these guys in the warehouse, young guy to faith. And, and so he invites him to get involved in our campus ministry. And it was interesting, after a period of time, this young guy comes up to me and he says, man, says, I didn't realize I became a Christian that there'd be so much paperwork to do. <laughs> and, uh, and again, the things that we find to be just normative, you know, taking notes at meetings or sermons and completing Bible studies, and we got our journals that we're writing in. And, and um, you know, for somebody that's uninitiated to the Christian culture, they think, man, I didn't know <laughs> there's so much paperwork. So I think it's some of those things that we take for granted. I, I think what helps me is I've got to put myself in the mind and the heart, particularly of a new believer or a beginning believer, and to kind of, again, start where they are and not where I'd like them to be. I think another issue that, that again, we've got to be careful, and, and I've been guilty of this, is that we disciple people in our preferences and applications. And so that I may feel very strongly about memorizing scripture. You know, I'm a good navigator and navigators are known for memorizing scripture. But, you know, scripture memory is simply an application. You know, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt memorize scripture. It's an application of how to get the word into our life. But when I force this on you, that it's really imperative for you to memorize scripture. So in some ways, I'm forcing my preference and my application on you without us talking through it. So in other words, to talk about what do you think are some good ways that we can get the scriptures into our lives? Well, I can read it and I can study it. What do you think about memorizing it? Yeah, that'd be helpful. And 
And then we have a discussion on scripture memory and whether that'd be useful to him. But it's easy to, whether it's, you know, political preferences, uh, worship preferences, clothing preferences, that it's easy to end up discipling people in our preferences and in our applications, rather than taking people to the scriptures, asking questions and helping them sort it out before the Holy Spirit, how this is applicable to them. And again, and that implies an approach where I'm asking more than I'm telling. I would say that's another piece that a lot of times, I think particularly for pastors that we use our exhortational gifts in this one-to-one setting, and we end up exhorting people more than we're asking people. And so that personal discovery is not taking place. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but those are several things that I've been guilty of, and uh, I've seen others be guilty of. And I would say another issue is, is that, you know, it's, it, and I find I'm guilty of this too, is that it really is about how am I loving this person that I'm with? And again, that if I'm only focused on the curriculum to cover, the information they need to know, the accountability that they want to have, in the midst of that, do they feel loved? And if they don't feel loved, yeah, I'm probably doing all the right things. But, you know, in John 13, 1, it's a fascinating passage. Jesus says, it describes Jesus the Apostle John says, and he loved them to the end. This is in reference to the 12. Now, I don't think this is a cosmic love of John 3.16, of loving the whole world. It's his love for these 12 men. And I've often thought, if I was one of the 12, how would I have felt loved by Jesus? How would I have experienced that love? And so again, I think another thing that we can get sidetracked on is that we want to so make sure they understand and believe and do the right things that maybe they don't feel loved. And it's simply a curriculum. It's more paperwork that they have to do. Well, Bill, if there's one thing I've learned about people, it's that they're messy. (laughs) And sometimes growth, even in our own lives, is very slow. So how do we cultivate the patience we need for the slow work of disciple making? To me, you know, we all have issues in our lives, right? That over a period of time that God's at work on. And one of those issues in my life is patience. I remember one time I was doing an outside job at home and um, I was on our driveway and and I got mad at something. I became impatient. So I threw my hammer down on the ground and this hammer had, you know, the rubber end to it. Right. And so it hits this pavement and it bounces off and it breaks a window in the house. (laughs) And my wife comes back and Peggy says, hey, how'd that window get broken? That's where the hammer broke it. So how'd the hammer break it? (laughs) I threw the hammer on the ground and it bounced up. And so, yeah, patience is is really an issue with me. I I picture patience as kind of like I'm slowly pushing this rock up the hill, right? One step at a time. And if I stop, the rock may roll back on me. But if I just kind of keep pushing it up the hill, and that's what I keep reminding myself I'm just kind of slowly pushing this rock up the hill. And so it is in my life. And, and it's really true in other people's lives that, I mean, you and I were talking again, referencing this mutual friend we have and this tragedy that happened in this family in this past year. And that it would appear that, you know, without his participating, that maybe God just stopped, you know, but no, God intervened and kept working. And I think we're often surprised as we're patiently waiting how God is often at work. What I find is that, you know, in patience with people, as I want to see change happen fast, 
but you know, I can't force that change. I've got to wait. For example, a young man I was meeting with, he was in middle management and in a, a business here in Columbus, and he um, he never really had a regular routine of reading the Bible. And he told me, he says, yeah, sometimes I think God is more of a concept to me than a relationship. But we kind of plugged away. About once or twice a month, we'd meet and you know, coffee shop and just read the scriptures together. And then one day he came in and said, man, I'm having a terrible time at work. The stress level is up to here. I'm working 24-7. How do I deal with this? And we went to the scriptures and uh, looked at how do you deal with anxiety and so on. And some things began to click because God put him in a position of desperation. And so that when we get together now, he's sharing from what he's learning from Psalms and how God's using the Psalms to help him deal with anxiety, stress, and so on. But it's like I was patiently meeting with him. And because I was in relationship with him, when that opportunity came up that he's desperate, now God's got his attention. It's kind of like I was there. And I think that's the other part of being patient. It's patience in relationships, waiting for God to be at work in a person's life. And if I'm in relationship with them, I can then jump in. But if I'm not in relationship, it's hard to jump in. And so patience, I think, is key. That's just in my book, I talk about God being a slow God. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's the idea that God's timetable a lot of times is not like our timetable. For example, I bought a new iPhone last week and and, you know, the speed at which it's over my, you know, my old phone is amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and in our culture, we're wrapped up in speed. But God often has a kind of a slow timetable that we need to wait on him for. And so patience is something that's an ongoing character issue for me. And But it's really important. By the way, what's the first quality of love in 1 Corinthians 13? It's being patient. And so patience is really important. And I think it's one of these... You know, I'm just on this, always on this cutting edge of my own life of learning patience. Second Timothy 2, 2 talks about not only making disciples, but this vision of a multi-generational approach to disciple making, that the people that you're imparting the word to, they're going to pass it on to another generation. So in this whole disciple making picture that you're creating for us, how do we actually disciple others in a way that they're going to end up discipling others too. Uh, good, good. Well, let me give you another picture, another place besides the second Timothy two, two passage. This is something I've been reflecting on. It's in Psalm uh, 128. You know, it says that blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. And he says, your wife will be like a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And so, again, it's like, you know, I've got two grown sons and I've got two grandchildren. And when we all gather, you know, you've got three generations around this table. But in children, there's always a potential of the next generation. And so sitting around this table is this next generation and multiple generations that are sitting there. And so that not only is it illustrated in 2 Timothy 2.2, but, but we can see that illustration in back even in the Psalms, and that every child has this potential of reproducing him or herself, that there's kind of the seed that's present in every person. And so I think when we think about multiplying our lives, part of it is, is that, you know, we, that's why you have to uncomplicate disciple making, 
because I want to interact with somebody in such a way that they think, you know, I could kind of mimic, you know, what Daryl did to me with somebody else. I'm not relating to Daryl as a pastor and his, his bookshelf on theology behind me, but he just simply read the Bible with me and asked me some questions. And I think, I think I could do that with somebody else. And so part of making life transferable is that it's, it's something that can be mimicked or imitated with somebody else. And so that's why I think that we need to be engaged in, I, I call it the, uh, the triple play of application, accountability, and affirmation with people, that we're encouraging a sense of accountability with one another. We're encouraging application. How do I apply what I'm reading? And then I'm giving affirmation to people. I'm affirming what God's doing in their life. And so, and that's done in a relational context. Again, from a pulpit or podium, it's hard to, I can exhort people on application, but I have no idea if they're making one. But in a relationship, we can talk about that. Now, from a podium, it's hard to have accountability. But if we're one-to-one, one-to-two, one-to-three, I can have accountability. And again, from a podium, it's hard to give affirmation. Well, boy, I've seen, Daryl, I've seen your life really change in the last couple months. Tell me what's going on. I can give that affirmation because we're accountable to one another. And so that when I think of discipling people that's passing it on a bowl, is that how am I giving, encouraging accountability, application, affirmation? Because then people can mimic that. They can see, okay, I can do that with somebody else. Now, also what I found is that, and, and you need to approach this with a sense of humility, you also want to kind of deconstruct at times what just happened in a, you know, in a, say in a conversation I had with somebody. So sometimes, you know, I'll say, let's, let's step back for a minute. What just happened here in our conversation? And the other person goes, well, you know, you got me to look at the Bible. I says, yeah, what else did I do? Well, you asked some questions about it. I said, yeah, okay. What kinds of questions did I ask? Well, one of them was, what difference could this make in my life? And so we'll kind of take apart what just happened. And then I might ask the question, well, is there anybody that needs to have a similar conversation in your life? You know, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a children, maybe it's a college friend, whatever it might be. Is there anybody else that could, might need to have a similar conversation? Well, yeah, I think so-and-so. Well, do you think that what we've done, you could have a conversation with him, kind of along the lines of what we did? And so again, we, I think there are appropriate moments where we want to deconstruct something, kind of take it apart, so the other person realizes what just happened. And again, that's that principle of intentionality. I'm choosing to be intentional. And then I ask the question, well, is there somebody else, you know, hey, maybe you could do this with. And that just lays that principle of passing it on to somebody else. So again, I think that the key for, you know, to make it transferable is we have to keep it simple enough and we have to encourage people to be thinking about how they can intentionally pass it on to somebody else. Bill, I know you do a lot of work with pastors and you help them figure out how to build a culture of disciple making within their church. What advice would you give to pastors on how they can use some of the lessons from your book in creating that culture within their churches? One of the first things I'll do with a pastor is we'll talk about his disciple making ministry, him personally, and who are the men, who are the women you're investing in. And because I've just seen, and we could, we, could, we could spend a longer time in this, but if you're going to build a disciple-making culture, the leadership of the church, particularly the senior pastor, has to be engaged in modeling it. Now, you can have a disciple-making ministry in a church, 
without the past, the pastor or the staff, or then maybe they're, they're minimally involved. You can have a disciple ministry, and that's good. We want to have those. But to build a culture, the leader has to be engaged. Leadership has to be engaged, has to be modeling this. And so one of the first challenges, I'll often ask a pastor if he wants to take this further, I'll say, well, I'd like to challenge you to take the disciple-making tithe. And just in the same way you tithe your money, you give 10%, right? Is that I want to challenge you and how do you, can you give 10% of your time to discipling some men and women? And well, I don't know if I can do that. Well, you know, it's like in encouraging your parishioners to tithe, right? Well, let's start with 5%. Can you give 5%? Okay, I think I can do that. And then I'll ask them, well, what are some of the things you might need to stop doing or delegate or not do so that you can devote that 5 or 10%? And then we'll have a discussion because, again, pastors, particularly senior pastors, are very busy people. There's a lot going on in his or her life. And so you can't just simply add 10% more to 100% full of schedule. You've got to help them think through what are some things I need to subtract what are some things I need to delegate in a sense to give myself space to be involved with people? And so that's my first step in culture building is that I want to get the pastoral staff, the leadership involved in disciple making. And so that it starts with that challenge of a disciple making tithe. And then we talk about how can you make that a reality then in your schedule? Because again, that's the other, I think this is another misconception people have with disciple making is that disciple-making, I'm simply exhorting you to do this. So I come alongside the past pastor, you need to you need to be making disciples. You know, you're missing the boat. You're not making enough disciples. You need to give more time to this. Okay, and so we're exhorting him. But who's going to sit down with him or her and say, hey, let's look at your schedule. You know, what do you think? Of me? See what I'm saying? So I'm coming alongside of them in the context of a relationship to help them and to help it become a reality rather than simply exhorting them to go and do this. And so that's the first step. And boy, we could talk further about this, but I always start at that point in time that, boy, I want to find out what the pastor, the staff's background is on disciple making, what their experience, how can you, what are you doing now? Maybe they're already tithing and that's super, and, but most of them aren't. And how can we begin to make that a reality? So that's pretty simple. And that's, and that's what I've seen is that in building a culture, we need to model before we plan. And in most strategic planning approaches, you create the plan and then you figure out how to model it. But what I've seen a disciple making needs to be modeled before it's planned because people mimic what you do. So if I'm modeling disciple making, there's a greater probability that people are going to see that, mimic that, and then begin discipling others themselves. I love how you're uncomplicating everything and making it just seem doable for everyone, including pastors uh, oh, with their busy you. schedules. Because if pastors aren't doing it, then uh, yeah, how can we expect anybody else to do it as well? So that's really helpful. Bill, let me ask you a couple of personal questions, if that would be okay. What are you learning these days? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's funny you should ask that because um, Last weekend, I was at the, uh, actually the 90th birthday party of a friend of mine. He's actually been a mentor over the years. And uh, so it's his 90th birthday party. His wife passed away at 88 last March, right in the middle of COVID. You know, and I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the U.S., uh, the, you know, you couldn't have funerals. You couldn't have a memorial service. And so people drove past the house and honked, you know, out of memory for his wife. And 
And so Dave has been a mentor to me. And, and so they had time of sharing at this party. And person after person stood up. Now, again, these, these were friends that were invited, so it wasn't a haphazard approach. But to a person, they talked about how Dave loved them, how Dave invested in them, and how Dave uh, got him into the scriptures, how Dave held him accountable, and again, how he loved him. And I thought, wow, what a great testimony. You know, thinking that, man, if I ever make it to 90, the Lord willing, it'd be exciting to have people stand up in a spontaneous ways and say, yeah, Bill did this with me. And do you know, Dave is still doing that. At After it was over, I was talking with him. He's telling me about a couple of guys he's meeting with right now that he's discipling and 90 years old. And um, And I just think, yeah, that's one of the things I'm learning is that no matter how old you are, you can keep doing this. I think the other piece is that Dave loved these people. And I was sitting at the table. I, you know, and again, Dave and I have had a relationship for 40 years. And I helped him marry his one daughter and then his son-in-law. Both of them had been involved in my campus ministry. And as I was driving there, I knew I'd meet the son-in-law at the wedding. And I thought, again, like I, I prefaced earlier when we first started, that man, there's some things I wish I could repeat, you know, that I did 30 years ago that I was more concerned about the curriculum and the goals rather than about the relationship. And so I apologized to this fellow. I said, you know, I recently wrote this book on disciple making, and, and it's really about lessons I've learned. And one of them is that the importance of relationship. And I just feel like, man, if I had to do it over again, we'd, I'd do some whole lot of things differently with you and to build our relationship. And he thanked me for it. And he says, well, I don't remember that. I, you know, people are always gracious when you say that. But again, that's one of the things that I'm learning is that out of this are two things. One is that, man, no matter the age I'm at, I, I'm going to keep at it. And the second is that it really is about relationships. Again, I wish I knew what I knew now about relationships, that I wish I would have applied that 30 years or so ago. I think it would have made a significant difference in my life then. And what's encouraging you right now? One is that, uh, for example... Um, What's encouraging me, even though I, I may not have invested in this individual in ways that I would now, just talking like at the wedding, I mean, excuse me, a wedding, the birthday party, talking to this one young man, he's not so young anymore. I knew him when he was 19, 20 years old, and now he's in his 40s. Actually, his daughter is, a, is in college here at Ohio State. She goes to our church, so it's kind of fun. This is like the second generation now. and But just seeing individuals like him still going on and still wanting to make a difference. He's telling me about a book that he's written about the gospel and how the gospel impacts people's lives. And it's an ongoing impact of grace. And, and can I help him get it published? And that's what I find when you become an author, uh, people you know want some help on getting the books published. But I know him and I would trust what he's written. And I asked him, send me a manuscript and let me look at it. And, and uh, But again, it, it's seeing people like this individual going on you know, loving God and his daughter loves God. You know, she wants to go into pre-med and wants to, I'm um, trying to find a way for her to kind of shadow a Christian doctor. And so, you know, he's passed it on to his daughter. And I think that's just, you know, to me, that is so encouraging when those things happen that somebody you invested in, you know, literally this was 25 years ago and, uh, and they're still going on and they're passing it on to their kids and they're trying to figure out how to have a ministry with that. To me, that's one of the things that, that just encourages me. 
Bill, the disciple making that you've done is going to reap benefits for eternity, but I feel like you've shared a lot of your wisdom, decades of experience now, and even the mistakes you've made, and you've shared them with us in this book. And I'm just so grateful for that ministry. I pray that many will read this book and apply the lessons in there and that we will see that it's it's possible for all of us with the Spirit's help to be disciple makers. So I wanna thank you for the book. Last question I wanted to ask you is, how can people find out more about you and your ministry and and where can they get this book? They can order the book through, it's put out by Moody Publishing. And um, uh, I know through the Navigator's office in Canada that they can purchase it. You can contact me at www.alongsider.com. I also have another book on disciple making called The Ways of the Alongsider. And that book is really a book on, uh, it's like a, um, a, a training manual on relational disciple making. And that's published by Nav Press and Tyndale House. And, uh, but you can go on my website, alongsider.com. I've got free resources. You can sign up for my blog. It'll connect you to uh, how to purchase these books and some other books that I've written. So alongsider.com. Also, if uh, a church or a pastor is interested in our coming alongside, helping you build a disciple-making culture, boy, I wish I had a Canadian address, but if you go to the U.S. address, they'll refer you back to a Canadian address, but it's navigatorchurchministries.org, navigatorchurchministries.org, and uh, we can put you in touch with a, uh, we have staff in Canada that come alongside and work with pastors and churches in building disciple-making cultures. In fact, we have a, um, a, it'll be starting back up again in the fall, a, a monthly uh, pastor's forum, uh, Zoom chat for that. But if you go to Navigator Church Ministries, they can put you in the right, put you in touch with the right person or contact me at alongsider.com and I can put you in touch with the right people as well. Well, thank you, Bill. Really appreciate your book and appreciate your ministry and very grateful that you joined us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me.